Hey guys, real quick before we get started, we are doing a free giveaway for listeners between now and May 31st. Cash prizes, free swag, Yacht Meetup tickets, San Diego Padre tickets, and more. All you got to do to qualify is go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and drop a five-star review. Send a screenshot to giveaway at summerscapital.com and we'll be selecting lucky winners May 31st. As always, I appreciate the support. Now let's jump into the show. I was reading this morning, like the amount of dry powder on the sidelines right now is like... I think two and a half trillion and nationwide, like uh, worldwide. That's a lot different than it was in 08 in the financial mm-hmm. crisis. Oh, totally. You know, there's so much capital sitting out there. What do you think is going to happen to that capital? Right now, they're earning 5% plus 6% at a bank or a high yields like accounts or buying a bond even. You can buy a 10 year bond at four and a half percent today. It's mm-hmm. like they're going to sit on there. But at some point, it's going to all flip over. And I think that's just the difference between 08 and now. There's just a lot of dry powder on the sidelines. Welcome to the Rich Summers Report, where we talk real estate, business, and wealth building, all while keeping it real. No fluff, no BS. I hope that you enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of The Reports today. We are back in the studio and we got some sunshine in the month of November here in San Diego. And I am very excited because we got our monthly Beers and Deals real estate meetup tonight here in downtown San Diego. And I got a special guest today. I got someone who is investing in self-storage units. I don't think I've had a guest on yet <laughs> that is investing in self-storage units. I got my man, Mark Kuhn. Mark, welcome to the show, brother. Dude, thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm grateful to be down uh, down in San Diego when it's uh, I'm from North Dakota, so... <laughs> yeah, man. It's a great place to be. It's beautiful. Dude, we out. got you all the way out here from North Dakota. What, what's yeah. the temperature out there right now? Oh, probably mid 40s. Mid 40s? That's yeah. not too bad. We had snow on Halloween, though. So, wow. It wasn't it wasn't as good. What's the uh, average during the wintertime, like daytime and nighttime average? Let's say January, February. Oh, probably zero. Wow. As the high. And, and does the sun go down? What about the low? Yeah, the low negatives, maybe negative teens. So zero is the high. Yeah, I, I yeah, single digits is that's a crazy could be good, good day. Well, I, don't, I don't even think I've ever experienced uh, that type of like coldness before. Like, what what do you have to wear layers wise when you go outside? Oh man, uh, you know, I try to use the heated seat option and the heated steering wheel the, option a lot <laughs> in the vehicles, but I probably underdress. But I'm not outside working in construction, so. But you got to, I mean, yeah, the Canadian goose down coats. If you've seen the little like red patch. If you were from there, you would know what I was talking about. But these are like $1,400 coats Damn. Uh, that literally people buy. And, and uh, you can sweat in them if you were sitting indoors. So they're very warm. But um, I don't know. I probably underdress. And Dude, you guys would probably laugh at me. I was driving to the gym this morning. I think it was like 61 degrees outside. I was driving to the gym this morning. I had my seat warmer on. <laughs> I said, like, no she's out there in a dress just <laughs> working at freaking 8 a.m. this morning. I'm like, really? It's like, it's kind of cold out. That's yeah. funny, dude. And and the sun goes down early in the wintertime up there. You guys are further north, right? Yeah. What time does the sun set? Gosh, it, by five o'clock, it could be dark. Okay, that's not too bad. I mean, in, it's dark at five o'clock this time of year in San Diego because of the daylight savings time. Yep. And we follow daylight savings as well. You do. So it probably similar. Okay. Yeah. I gotcha. So, dude, uh, tell me about self-storage, man. Like with self-storage right now in this climate, what are some of the benefits of investing in it? Yeah. I think self-storage as a whole, like... You just look at, and I know you talk about the market and and a lot of your, uh, a lot. Anyway, I think self-storage does good in the good times and the bad times. So meaning like, let's look at the last recession, the financial crisis of 08. What was the best product type out of there? Well, it was Mm self-storage. And why? Well, I think 
A, it made it. There was a lot, not many sales of self-storage properties. And I think in, in recessions in general, people need to store things. Usually they're going to move in together. You know what I mean? Like reduce their cost of living while well, they still got to store their stuff. But I think in self-storage, you can just, you can fluctuate things every 30 days. You don't have as much regulation. Think about multifamily or I know you have boutique hotels. I don't know if there is any regulation. There's probably regulation coming, right? Mm-hmm. Well, really storage hasn't been hit with regulation. And where I can adjust the monthly rents from, say I'm building a new facility and the market rate is a couple hundred bucks a unit. Okay. Well, I could come to the market and do 50 bucks a month. Mm. Brand new facility. Well, it's going to happen. It's going to fill up instantly. Well, then what can I do in the next 30 days? I can jack the rents right to 200. But what you find out in storage is that it's very sticky. You'd think everyone would move out. Well, no, 70% of the people actually stay there. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's just a, it's something that you can adjust very quickly increasing your revenue. And if your occupancy goes over 90%, just keep jacking the rents a little bit. And until your occupancy goes too low to where you don't like it, right? And so I just think I like the adjustability and I love the boringness of it, right? Like I, I'm like the Cody Sanchez believer that boring things, but, you know, make money. Mm-hmm. I've invested in lots of fancy things and, and uh, you know, they're shiny, they're bright and they're beautiful, but most of the times it's the boring stuff that's always made me the money. Yeah. Um, well, and it's evergreen as well. You know, the, there's never going to be a replacement for two things, a place for people to live and right. a place for people to sleep, but also a place for people to store their belongings. Mm-hmm. There's never going to be a technology that supersedes that, at least in the foreseeable future. Right. And so I also love that, you know, like you alluded to, uh, when people move or, um, you know, rents go up, it's like it's kind of an afterthought because the prices for these storage units are not so crazy in terms of like a percentage of someone's income or disposable income to where you, you pump the rents a little bit or maybe they're not even using it. Yeah. They just have stuff in there like they're just forget about it. Um, it's not something to where people are going to move out right away. It's like, hey, I'll come back to this later when I have time. It's yeah. almost like a sec- overthought, right? Yeah. I, I think people just pay it to pay it and they don't want to yeah. move their stuff and and they just keep paying it. I like the collection of rent too. It's just via credit card. Usually it's automated processes within storage and storage. It's like, it's so light in the management world. You don't even have to like gone are the days where you need to have a little 20 by 20 box where someone needs to run the whole storage site. Mm -hmm. You don't even need that anymore. You know, most of the things you can automate, literally you can get in through like the locking system, like with your phone, like some of the apartments and boutique hotels, you got automated Bluetooth technology. And then, hey, when you don't pay your rent on the first, guess what? You get locked out of your unit. Right. <laughs> Until you pay the late fee to get back in the unit. So uh, I think just automation has helped the self-storage industry reduce. How do you guys management. treat uh, delinquencies in the self-storage space? Yeah. So I think the same as multifamily or the same as most things, you know, you get them a grace period where if it's a late after the first, it's late because we, you can pay with your credit card, right? Mm-hmm. Like we will pay the fees to get the the cash. And then, you know, then they got to pay a late fee. And then after the fifth day, they got to pay more of a late fee. So there's really no grace period with it. We either want the money or we want you out. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So after the late fee or the late period, right? And they don't pay. What's the next step after that? Basically, we would lock the unit. It just gets it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, what if if some of these folks are like, I don't care. I'm not going to come back for my stuff. Then what? Yeah. So 57 days after they were to say that and they don't come back and get anything, they don't pay their bill. You can actually put the, I mean, we've all seen storage wars, right? Like mm-hmm. you can post it online and there's auction companies that'll come in and, and do all the work. You'll collect, I think, 50% of whatever they get. And then you uh, you vacate the unit, someone cleans it out 
you clean it up, rent it out to the next person. Gotcha. And how, so, how what's like the delinquency rate on average? See, I'm in, I'm going to term this luxury storage, which is basically mm-hmm. instead of a 10 by 10 storage unit, I'm in 800 to 1,000 square foot storage units. So these okay. things are 18 by 50. So these are massive. These are bigger units. Yeah, these are not just for boat RVs, but it's small contractors. Maybe someone that can't afford a shop space yet. Mm-hmm. You could put a podcast studio in one of those spaces. Yeah, and I I think I should do that in that way. <laughs> there you go. But it, that, that would be awesome. And But I, I just, the delinquency of what we have as a bigger product is even less than self-storage. Because if you have a five by five and you got a bike and whatever, a couple things in it, you may be more opt to, geez, I'm leaving North Dakota, I'm going to California. Right. <laughs> I'm just going to leave this stuff there, not paying the bill anymore, forget about it, have it. So in these bigger storage units, well, geez, if you've got a boat or an RV or, I mean, geez, you got a lot of area to put stuff in. It could be all garbage at the end of the day, but we haven't actually ran into that yet. But I'll make sure that I document that the first time we have that, because I'm sure there'll be a lot of stuff in there. Right. So like delinquency rate with more apartments, you know, they're going to be single digits. Obviously, the, the A-class stuff and the nicer products, uh, the higher rents, they're going to have lower delinquency on average, generally yep. speaking. Uh, and the more workforce housing, C-class stuff, you're going to have a little bit higher delinquency, but it's still going to be single digits. Is it double digits? I mean, what are we talking with, with self-storage? Are we talking mid-teens? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's mid-teens. I think it would be maybe 10% okay. or less because, like I said, it's people want their stuff. Like they they, they want to keep their stuff for a reason. People mm-hmm. like generally are hoarders at this time when they're, you know, they want to keep their stuff and they don't want, yeah. they don't want to let go of any of it. So your delinquency rates, I'd say 10% or less being, you know, average. Sure. Okay. On self-storage. On luxury storage, I'm going to say less than 2% because bigger storage unit, they're going to clean that thing out before yep. we take it. Now, what is the biggest risk to self-storage? Is it new supply and new development entering the marketplace? Yeah, I think so. You know, in COVID, it basically skyrocketed. These these occupancies averaging in self-storage were they were always in the mid mid to low 80s, and that was pretty good in self-storage, and you could live with that. But all of a sudden, they skyrocketed to mid-90s. Mm. Well, they've never seen that in the 50 years self-storage has really been pushed. And so, you know, I think the occupancy levels have been just so elevated for so long. They're finally decreasing a little bit, mm-hmm. and now you're seeing all this cutthroat on pricing type thing happen. And the market's just the market's just not liking it. Now people aren't developing right now because units per capita, I mean, the biggest threat is, yeah, you overbuild a market and then people move away from market. But if you're building and growing markets, California is a great market for storage. Lots of demand here. Um, not a lot of regulation around it yet. Arizona, any highly populated growing yeah. area. Yeah, when you say regulation, what do you mean? With well, I mean, controlling rent. Oh, okay. Rent, know, rent control. So yeah. they'll cap like how much you can increase the rent per year. Yeah. That they, kind of stuff. They, they haven't done that really. In, in California, California they no, have not. You can still fluctuate things as you want. Mm-hmm. You know, regulation probably always comes in the future. It seems like it always yeah. puts a rain on our investor parade. But does anyone ever rent like a self-storage unit and just like live in it for a little bit? I thought that'd be like a cheap way to like live. Yeah. So, well, especially when you're building a bigger storage unit where you can like literally park a RV into. Yeah. And then and then there's an outlet in our storage unit. And there's and, ventilation and, and stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's heat in the Midwest, you know, where I'm at. Dude, so. I, would, I would so do that. If I was in a pinch, <laughs> I would do that before going and sleeping on someone's couch. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and I think, you know, some of these guys put porter potties in them and stuff. Really? But yeah. So, so it is a thing. <laughs> I try to w- use my horse blinders anytime I'm walking past my storage units just because it's like, 
really like yeah but, but you don't want to kick him out you're like hey. yeah he's been here for two years he pays okay. his rent on time okay, so it's you like, yeah, he's, good. Doing yeah it. Okay. he's good so i think but i mean it's it's uh, my product and luxury storage is so unique because you got you got contractor shops which we call a 20 by 50 with a bathroom and maybe an office in it that'd be a contractor shop like floor drain whatever yeah. a nice area for them to do business out of well, mine just basically deletes the floor drains, deletes the bathrooms, and it's just two lights ran off a motion detector. Uh, you have climate control to a certain point, right? Wow. And then, you know, an outlet, 15 amp outlet, and that's all you get in there. But it's half the money. So this this guy that's been living at, at your unit for two years, what does he pay ballpark monthly? There, It's about a buck a foot is okay. really what they pay. So if it's a thousand square foot unit, you know, usually the rent will be. Wow, that's expensive. Yeah, yeah. A thousand bucks. Okay. Yeah. All right. Because I mean, I imagine a one bedroom apartment out there in that you could probably rent a one bedroom apartment out there for the same price, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can get a one bedroom for that. Yeah. And so it's just. So in, why, why, what does he do that then? What's that? Well, I, what's I, the advantage of living in a storage unit? Well, because we're can... right now next to a trucking facility. So I think he just plans on trucking and then living there while he's not in his truck driving. I'm not really sure, yeah. but I hope he's not living in there, honestly. Like, <laughs> I, I don't think he's living in there, but oh, why is there a porter potty in there at the bare minimum? <laughs> yeah. I don't know how what's, much you're working on your what truck. What was the first time that you realized like, oh, this guy might be living here? Like what made you realize that? Well, I don't know. He's he's there an awful lot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, maybe that's the, maybe I should just turn him into the manager on site. So then I don't have to pay anyone to be there. Yeah. But yeah, it's in, in, you know, any facility, there's people that live in salt mini storage units, right? Like they lock themselves in there. And I have plenty of buddies around the States that, you know, they'll live in there because mm -hmm. it's a hundred bucks a month. And as long as they can make the rent on the first, they can still live there for another 30. But most of these facilities know with like a, a gate access that you're in there. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, you're developing a, a storage facility uh, right now. Um, what are some of the barriers to entry in terms of building and developing a, a self-storage uh, facility? Yeah. So I think development in general is you have to have either the capital to do it or the ability to raise capital. Mm -hmm. And and so developments, storage in general is a debt heavy investment because of the revenue, you know, say it makes $100,000 of revenue. Well, their expense ratios are usually 35, 25 to 35%. Let's just call it 30%. It's pretty so, lean because you, right. guys, you guys just have a on-site person, like a front desk and that's it, right? Not even that. It's all automated. It's all software. Automated. No you don't one even have talks. a front desk. Right. Yeah. No really? one really needs to talk to anybody. Wow. Last time I went, I went to a self-storage facility. I think I, I rented one for a couple months and this is probably eight years ago. And, uh, they had a, they had a front desk person, but, uh, so you're saying a lot of these new facilities that with the technology, you don't even need that. Yeah. There, there's most facilities built today. Don't even have a person running it. Okay. And then they really don't need to do it. Everything's automated. How you get in the building, how you get to your unit. If you don't pay the bill at your unit, you get locked out of it. You know, say it's a multi-story, probably more familiar with you in the South here. And you see all these big multi-story buildings. It's just everything's a key fob. You don't pay the bill. You don't get in the building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, you don't need to. And usually when you call somebody, it's not even the local guy. It'll be a uh, a VA from somewhere that's mm -hmm. answering the call service to run the facility. Right. Um. So, so many ways to automate it. But yeah, say, you know, $100,000 income, thirty percent expense ratio it's it's just a debt heavy investment and right now with debt being as high as it is i mean we're talking eight percent debt right now these facilities are dropping and you know it can't support the debt and the prices that were the cap rates they were at but you know 
if debt comes down like it did, like a lot of these guys who own self-storage rate before COVID, I mean, absolutely exited for a monster amount. Because when debt dropped to three, three, four percent, yeah, those guys they were exiting at a oh low cap rate. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah, and they they own lots of facilities now today. Mm-hmm. Is seller financing common in in this space? If you love real estate investing, passive income, and tax benefits, but don't have the time, my company, Summers Capital, is buying boutique hotels right now. We source the deals, we renovate the properties, and we even handle all the day-to-day management, making it truly hands-off for our investors. If you want to learn more to see if we can help you, visit summerscapital.com slash invest to book a call with our team. Again, that's summerscapital.com slash invest. Now back to the show. I would say right now it would be if Mm -hmm. you can find... So it's kind of an interesting industry. It's about 50% corporate and it's about 50% mom and pa shops. So right now is probably not the best time to be developing. Although there's certain markets that still need development done, but you can find these mom and pa's that want to retire. And mm. most of the time, the ma's and pa's, they, they don't build enough units. They will only build, let's say, you know, a hundred units, small units on one lot. Well, it's not enough to get a corporate attention. So a lot of times people build too small, they don't get to the right buying group, you know, for your exit strategy. But, and because those facilities are harder to run, they're just, they just are. Automation is helping us though, do that more Mm -hmm. efficiently on smaller complexes. Yeah, sure. Um, What about like, can you assume these loans in in the self-storage space? Are a lot of these loans assumable? I don't know. I don't think banks are allowing anything assumption wise. I I haven't, you know, that used to be something that would happen all the time, but Mm. I don't see a lot of assumption loans. Like banks are like getting tight themselves right now just because the debt market and uh, the word assumption is just something that they don't do anymore. Mm. (laughs) Obviously it's hyper local, but are you guys seeing the rent growth kind of slow down right now because of the, the interest rate environment and all that? Or are you guys still seeing a lot of rent growth? The Midwest is because I have friends in Arizona and, and California and, and and we are a lagging like the Midwest as a general is always lagging what yeah. you guys are doing out here. So you guys were booming a couple of years ago. We were actually not booming that much. It was growing. Right. But we're still growing. You know what I mean? Like we're we're lagging. So we're just, you know, you guys kind of come quickly. It happens around here. It seems like mm-hmm. thing rent growth. And then we kind of ride a steadier curve. And, uh, you know, I think just with that happening, that's why it's a great place to park money is in the Midwest. Is Absolutely. It, there's all sorts of guys from California that go and park money up there. It's a great diversification tool because where you guys are five caps, six cap. I don't know what the cap rate is around here now. Well, what is the cap rate? For self-storage? Well, just, I, don't, I don't know for self-storage, yeah. but I can say like, you know, for, for multifamily out here, uh, especially like nicer multifamily, you know, the class A stuff could be, you know, around 3%. Right. Um, and then, you know, more like B, C class, you're looking at maybe four and maybe, maybe 5% in some of the more like inland areas of San Diego. But yeah, generally speaking, it's a low cap rate environment. Hotel stuff here, generally speaking, is going to be anywhere from six, seven, eight percent cap rate. Okay. Um, self storage, I have no idea. Wow. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that the self storages are low as well. They usually follow kind of class A multifamily. That's mm-hmm. generally where it'll run just because it's, such an easy asset to own. I think yeah. class A multifamily is easy to own too because you, the property supports good management, right? And and it's easier to own. So, you know, our cap rates though are, are seven, eight, nine, you know, where, where yours are generally lower. So it's a better place to park money. You'll make more cash flow. Obviously your appreciation is much higher down here yeah. over the long run. So I think it's, if you're from California or you're from the South, it's a great place to park money up North. And that's, 
that's generally where we see investors come from is they want to diversify into the Midwest and have that steadier flow. I was going to ask you, like competition out there in, in North Dakota, do you guys have a lot of out-of-state investors that try to come in there or is it mostly just local buyers? Yeah, I think there will be groups from California and everywhere that'll come up there and buy things. Mm-hmm. And it's just because like, well, you can buy a house up there for, you know, 350000 brand new. Yeah. I don't know what it costs down, <laughs> down here. Astronaut, you know, quite a bit more than that, of course. And so I think they go up there and park money. They buy entry-level homes. They'll buy a bunch of them, kind of a build-to-rent model. And they'll they'll just buy and sit on that. Yeah, there's all sorts of investors that'll go up there and park money. Really? North Dakota, okay. South Dakota. I've done um, investing, a lot of investing out of state in different markets. But what I find interesting is here, specifically like in Southern California, I feel like out-of-state investors don't come in here. Oh, It's really like the only competition here in Southern California are people that are local. So, I mean, you, you can see that as a good thing or a bad thing, depend on, depending on how you, you look at it. Um, but I do find that interesting. Here in Southern California, it's almost, it's almost all local folks. And there's even local folks here in Southern California that are like, I don't buy in California. So I had someone the- on the podcast recently and he was like, yeah, I only invest out of state and he lives here in San Diego. Oh. So it's interesting. Where does he invest then? What did he, what did he say? Uh, a lot of like inland markets, uh, Midwest markets. He does a lot of like multifamily residential stuff. And so I find that interesting. But, you know, uh, there's... Here's the thing. I think there's opportunities in all markets, yeah. in all asset classes. Right. You just got to get good at one of them. Yep. Right? Yep. There's opportunity in all of them. Yep. I completely agree with that. I think I think if you're going into the into the Midwest, you're looking for cash flow. I think you're not going to find that down here unless you're 50% levered or less, you mm-hmm. know, you're just not going to see a lot of cash flow. But you'll get that greater appreciation. And you you'll get a bigger lever of value add for each additional dollar that drops yes. your NOI because of the lower cap rate environment. Because, you know, what's a cap rate at the end of the day? It's it's a market's opinion of risk-adjusted return. And so the buyer, you know, if you're looking at two markets, let's just say Cincinnati, right? Yeah. Cincinnati was one of the first markets. It was, was the first market that I bought oh. multifamily in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, cap rates are much higher in Cincinnati than they are here in San Diego. And so if you just compare those two markets, uh, an investor is willing to accept lower cash flow in an area like San Diego versus Cincinnati because they know they're going to make so much more in appreciation, appreciation. long-term. Now, an investor going into Cincinnati is going to demand more cash flow because they know there's going to be less appreciation long-term. And that's really what drives these cap rates, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and I I, I think California is like one of the best places you can make, money, like a flipper or, you know, and, and value add, like you said, how you can get a four cap yeah. on your value. How do you build more value than that, you know? And, and uh, the Midwest, I don't think, you can value add there too, but it's definitely not to the same to the same degree. Mm-hmm. Usually it's harder to but tar- there's, get your dollar value out of that. For sure. But there's a lot of benefits of going into uh, a lot of these Midwest markets. You know, as long as these markets have, you know, employment growth, good population growth, steady fundamentals, like some of these Midwest markets I personally wouldn't go into. So like, you know, the ones that have declining population growth, that scares me. So like yep. Detroit, areas like Cleveland. Yeah. I'm not interested in those kind of markets because at least if I'm going to go into a market, I want to know the population's growing. It mm-hmm. doesn't need to be growing rapidly, but... As long as it's growing one to two percent a year, like I feel good about that, right? Yeah. More people moving there than moving out. <laughs> that's a good thing, you know. But you go into areas like Detroit, where the I mean, if you look at the Detroit population over the last forty years, yeah, it's declining. Right. That's scary to me. You yeah, know I know. I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. People are moving out. It's funny too. I was just looking at this in the markets, and they said that all the markets that were booming are now hurting, right? Like your Arizonas mm-hmm. and 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 the places like California that were all this outflow, New York, and all these places. I think even Detroit was in there that they're actually steadying or growing in mm-hmm. rents. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't know how that is or why that is, but I think it's just maybe they're lagging. I don't know. Some yeah, kind of and maybe indicator. certain markets within, maybe certain markets, sub markets within Detroit. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I know there's people that say, like, oh, there's a lot of people like flooding out of New York and areas like, you know, California. But I will say, yes, there's people leaving California. But if you look at the household income of the folks that are leaving versus the people that are coming in, oh. the people that have low household income are leaving, right? Mm. And the ones that are making good money are coming in. And so gotcha. when that happens, that's what really drives sale prices, but also rent prices up as well. Gotcha. Wow. I, uh, I guess I didn't know that, you know, you hear all sorts of news, ta- you know, and they, yeah. they can make a, a, a headline shape however they want, right? Oh, 100%. But yeah, we're, we're well, we're in an interesting market too. I think the marketplace, you got these high debt rates. Now we're, job growth has slowed finally. We've gotten some measures from the Fed saying maybe there's a pause, you know, maybe we're at the peak rate cycle of where we're at. And, you know, right. it's, I'm trying to figure out though, it's like, where do investors go? Like right now, in, investing in real estate isn't like a cash flow. It's not like quit your job and and live on the cash flow of a property. Not like, at all. Those days are gone. Yeah. Do you do you find? And I'm just curious on boutique hotels and and your your case. I mean, is the cash flow in this market? You know, how, are you finding it still, or or is it is it more challenging? Because I almost everyone I've talked to is saying the cash flow has just been light on everything. You yeah. know, and obviously debt markets not helping. Yeah. So with the hotel stuff, we're buying underperforming assets and we're adding a ton of value to them. Okay. And so while we're adding a lot of value where we're renovating these properties, we're typically buying them on like short-term loans, like bridge loans. Okay. So we're paying high interest rates. And we're also shutting down these properties until we renovate them and then we rebrand, relaunch them. And then once we stabilize them, then we can refinance into some permanent debt. Cool. So really until we find refinance into permanent debt, there's not going to be a ton of cash flow, right? Um, but once we refine a permanent debt, these properties, yes, there is there is good cash flow because we're playing with deals that, you know, seven, eight, nine percent cap rates mm. versus multifamily right now, especially in Southern California, which is three, four, five percent cap rates, right? Yeah. So we're gonna see a little bit of cash flow, which is good. But generally speaking, while we're renovating these properties, there's not gonna be cash flow. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh whether the investor likes that or doesn't like that, you know, that's just part of part of the upside in the future. Yeah. And yeah. But that said, like, you know, for these investments a big chunk of all the proceeds that when we do these deals, a big chunk of that is derived from the equity growth that we we force, Oh, right? So we go in, 2X the value of the property, and we, we create all that appreciation. We do a cash out refi, mm. cash flow it, reap the tax benefits, and then sometime, let's say we do a 10-year hold, sometime by year 10, we'll look to exit for another nice gain. However, if we can meet that 10-year projection early, like let's say year seven or eight, for mm-hmm. example, we'll look to exit early, you know, okay. but I just want all the investors to know going in, Hey, like this is a 10 year time horizon, Yep. you know? Yeah. And, and this is probably a great market to even flip, you know, I'd imagine some of the, if you raise the value high enough, I mean, do you just look to sell the thing too or not generally? It's, it's, you not, like our, to hold? it's not our first exit strategy. Yeah. The reason I say that is because, you know, it takes a lot of time and effort to find these deals, oh, okay. especially the good ones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it takes a lot of time and, and just a lot of workload to renovate these properties and then to operate them. And so it's like, for us, like, I don't want to do all that work and then just give it back, Yeah, you know? And, and I also believe there's going to be a ton of inflation over the next 10 years, organic inflation mm-hmm. and organic appreciation. So obviously right now we're, we're in a, a tightening environment. However, 
you know, if I'm a betting man, I feel like inflation is going to run wild again over the next 10 years. And so I want to be able to capture that, you know, especially since we're buying good assets and mm-hmm. good locations. I want to be able to ride that organic wave, yeah. you know. And if you look at a lot of the the wealthiest real estate investors on the planet, they didn't get wealthy by buying and selling, buying and selling. Yeah. They got wealthy by buying and holding. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I love the 10-year strategy because I, I agree. It, it can get painful at times holding everything. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you, obviously you're always cash outflow. And or finding new new investors to invest. So I, same thing in storage. Very debt heavy investment. But I always tell like like my goal with our storage portfolio is to group 30, 40 of them together. Wow. Because then the multiple, you know, you can reduce the cap rate on all of them when you get all those facilities underneath one roof. You know, you mm-hmm. can get a few hundred million dollars of storage. You can your NOI, your return on your cap rate ends up being instead of a six exit, you can exit at a four because life insurance. They love the automation and the easy, the easiness of storage. So, and we're just kind of creating a niche, you know, more or less my companies are just a vertical of that. And I like the boring stuff. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. So for a new investor out there, maybe it's someone listening to this podcast right yeah. now and they want to get into self-storage. What's one or two things that they should start with first? As far as like the investor as an LP or the investor that wants to go out and like Not do a limited this partner. They, they want to go do it actively. So- I mean, obviously we're in a, in a, I would call us a down market or down. I don't know how much further it goes or if it goes back up again, but I would say 50% are mon pause. You got to have an outreach program to get to those people and like, see if they're willing to sell and, but make sure before you do that, I don't know how many are opt to do just seller financing. There mm-hmm. may be some, but you might overpay by a significant amount. If you're going to do that, why don't you make sure like your capital is correct first? And if, you don't have the money, make sure you can find the money and then go and chase the deals. But I think there's always deals out there. There's 10,000 baby boomers on to retire every day. So it's, these deals are coming available. It's mm-hmm. just, well, we're in the biggest transfer of wealth in history right now. We are. I mean, the next happening. seven years. Yeah. We're, you and I are trying to capitalize between hotels, storage, yeah. and, and I'm buying multifamily if I can find the right deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just trying to hold everything, I, I, you know, as painful as it can be at times, just holding everything. It's always cash outflow, but I think you, you hold through this appreciation of the next decade. I don't know. I, I sure feel like inflation is going to be around for a minute too. Dude, I agree with you, man. I mean, I think the next seven years, we're going to see the greatest transfer of wealth in American history go down. There's 40 million baby boomers that are going to be retiring between now and the next seven years. It's estimated that 25% of the boutique hotels out there that are 10 million and under are owned by these baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And I'd imagine in the self-storage space, a good chunk of those self-storage facilities that are 10 million and under are owned by the baby boomers as well. And so it's like, you know, for the, all the folks out there that are jumping in right now, yep. whether it's self-storage or boutique hotels, like there's a huge opportunity and the opportunity is now to learn this stuff so you can, you know, capitalize on this event that's occurring. Yeah. This is the biggest transfer of wealth literally in American history. It's about to go down. So people on the sidelines right now, like wondering if, you know, there's there's bad news out there in the marketplace, wondering if they should jump in or maybe it's too risky. I'm like, no, like you need to learn this right now because this is about to go down. And if you want to participate in it, like now's the time. Hey guys, real quick, the only way this show grows, the only way we continue to bring on bigger and better guests is if you guys rate, review, and share the show. So if you could take two seconds or the click of the thumb to review on Apple or Spotify, it will mean the world to me. But more importantly, we'll be able to reach more entrepreneurs and more real estate investors and help them build wealth through this podcast. Now back to the show. Yeah. And just think about it too. Like I was I was reading this morning, like the amount of dry powder on the sidelines right now is like... I think two and a half trillion and nationwide, like uh, worldwide. 
that's a lot different than it was in 08 in the financial mm-hmm. crisis. Oh, totally. You know, there's so much capital sitting out there. What do you think is going to happen to that capital? Right now, they're earning 5% plus 6% at a bank or a high yields like accounts or buying a bond even. You buy a 10-year bond at 4.5% today. It's mm-hmm. like, they're going to sit on there. But at some point, it's going to all flip over. And I think that's just the difference between 08 and now. There's just a lot of dry powder on the sidelines. Yeah, I agree with you. And some folks can't buy right now. Um, and, you know, think about... All these folks out there, I mean, I was just out in Houston. I was interviewing uh, Robert Martinez, the apartment rock star. He, yeah. he just foreclosed on a $51 million multifamily deal. Wow. So think about that, you know, $16 million of investor capital gone. He's not in a place to go to his investors and raise money right now. Right. right? And so there's other operators right now that maybe they didn't get foreclosed on, but they're not giving or they're not paying out distributions. They're not in an environment to go raise money. Right. Yeah. And so that's more dry powder on the sidelines. And then you have all these folks that are, you know, watching the news and they're terrified. Yeah. That's more dry powder as well. <laughs> right. But, you know, I, I think in a time like this, yes, you sh- you need to be more cautious. You need to be more selective on, on in terms of what deal you buy. Like for us, we're, we need to buy at a heavy discount and we need to be able to buy stuff in great locations to where we can add right. tremendous value. Like the days of buying turnkey stuff and, you know, letting the organic appreciation do its thing over two, three years and have a nice exit. Those days are over. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think nothing pencils really good right now, right? Like nothing, not not with this debt market. And I don't think anything is going to pencil for Mm. a little while. And I think it's just going to keep accumulating cash. And at some point, you're going to have to buy something. And if you don't, if you're not risk adverse, obviously you have some risk, you're you're an investor, you you know how to add value to places. It's like most people that are watching this probably don't, aren't willing to go try to find a storage unit or find a boutique. they're, They're thinking about it. They're like, hey, when I get to this point or I get, that much dry powder stacked up that I can actually go buy it myself, then I'll go do it. It's like, there's going to be more deals done with zero cash, I think. It's going to be, I think, seller finance, creative financing, that type of thing. That's the only way deals are going to get done because mm-hmm. this younger generation just doesn't have the the money to buy it. Mm-hmm. There's just, I mean, shit, you can't even afford a home nowadays if you're going to leave college with a student loan debt. It's like <laughs> $400,000, house is going to cost you four grand a month. They yeah. can't, They just can't afford that. I love like your post about like the salary increase. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you talk about the median household income and it just hasn't changed that much. It hasn't. It <laughs> hasn't. And that's why I think, you know, like folks out there that are, are doing what we're doing um, or any of the, the listeners out there that are listening to this podcast, it's like, dude, investing into real estate and starting businesses. I mean, that's that's the path. Right. You know, so I, I guess I'm curious for you, like, how does one go about educating themselves in the self-storage space if they want to become a self-storage investor? Because I know, you know, there's a ton of education out there and masterminds in the, uh, not the boutique hotel space, but like multifamily, short-term rentals, boutique hotel stuff. There's not a lot. Like we have a boutique hotel mastermind, but I think we might be the only like official one. Yeah. Um. And so I'm curious, like in the self-storage space, how does one educate themselves? Are there podcasts out there? Are there masterminds? What's the best path? Yeah, I'd say if you're going to educate, like A.J. Osborne does a great job. That's true. That's true. He does. He does a phenomenal job. I'm educating myself with his stuff all the time. I mean, he's talking about, honestly, there's not that many pieces to self-storage to really understand. There is a lot of detailed information to know, but just make sure like, I mean, whether you follow me, I talk about storage all the time and I'm, you know, constantly updating myself with the markets, but. And, And speaking of that, I encourage all the listeners to go follow Mark on Instagram at Mark period, coon, period, M-A-K. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously you're putting out content to self-storage stuff. I know AJ's doing it, but uh, does he have a mastermind? 
I think yeah, he's he's got some classes that Brit Brit Arneson and and AJ Osborne are Invest, kind of investor girl Brit. Shout out yeah. to Brit. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're actually going to do a podcast soon. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she'll be here. Uh, they talk about storage a lot. I think they do a phenomenal job, and that's probably the best place to learn. Uh, there's definitely a few books out there that you know you can get on Amazon and find. And and storage is much easier to understand, I think, than maybe say apartment units or hotels. It only gets more sophisticated after that. And mm-hmm. I suggest everyone, yeah, probably follow AJ Osborne. Unfortunately, I'd love you to tell myself, but I think he does a better job than I do. That's <laughs> a lot of transparency. I mean, he he is involved. He's been involved with it for twenty plus years. You know, that's what he lives and breathes. So um, I think he does a good job explaining and educating others. Within where where it. do they invest? Where does, where does AJ invest? So he was, he was in Boise, like Idaho area. And so like, I think that surrounding area, but now I think they're in a, I think they're in a handful of states or mm-hmm. 10, 15 states. They're kind of buying facilities all over the U S. Gotcha. Yeah. And, uh, it's a good model. He, he does some development as well. Um, not many developers are going right now. We're, we're probably w- one of a few in the Midwest. I know some people still in the South here building in California and Arizona. Yeah. Uh, how long does it take to like develop a self-storage facility? I mean, you got the permits, entitlement, uh, all this stuff on the front end, right? Yeah. But that de- it depends on what city municipality you're in. <laughs> yeah. It's much easier where we're at. You know, yeah. I can get zoning changes in a couple months done and have a permit in three months. Wow. Right? That's quick. Yeah. Yeah. So where we're at. So you can buy the land and be shovel ready in, in inside four months. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. so cool. And you could be built in six months, stabilized in a few months. Okay. So, you know, we'll call it 12 to 18 months. You can, from the time you find the land, to fully built out. And it, cash it, where do you guys bring in the materials for this? It's just like a bunch of containers, right? Yeah. So there's a few different ways to build them. Yeah. And of course, depends what steel prices are. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we use lumber, if okay. that seems to be, because again, our units are a little bit larger. Um, but typically the smaller self-storage ones you see, there are just like steel beams. They sell them almost as kits. Mm. And uh, there's, lots, there's lots of vendors that'll help build these things. And they go, they just go up so fast. I mean, some of these sites, they can be 45 days and you can have a 100,000 square foot storage facility. Wow. With a gate. <laughs> wow. And they, there's construction crews that just go around the U.S. and literally pop site after site. And we use a software. I know we were talking demographics before and, and some of that, but like radius plus that'll tell us tell us like how many units per capita what's the median income you know it'll tell us every demographic that we need to know about that market so like radius plus is like an expert tool for just self storage it'll tell you how many permits are in that area coming on board so give me some metrics that you guys look for when buying self storage in a new market yeah so if it's an existing unit um you know you always look at median income and, and population growth like you were talking about make sure it's a mm. growing market because Typically, you're going to be overpaying. You're still in a market where sellers still don't want to come down. Yeah. <laughs> they still want what they wanted two years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, really, those are the key ones before you're even going to look at a market. But then, you know, just see, like you, can you add some value? Are the rents under market? Or, you know, you got street rate, street rates, which are what the the REITs would call, you know, I was kind of talking about this before, where they drop rates by like, 50% just mm. to fill the units. And then you have market rates. Well, there is a lot of fluctuation in these markets. Like these, like errors, like markets that got flooded with self-storage, geez, the rents were 200 and now they're 80. Mm. So they're trying to navigate how to, how to actually excel the, the appreciation, increase revenue on these units. Um, but those are really, I mean, we use Radius Plus, like I said, 
in its demographics. Literally look for population growth. Look for a reason to add value to the unit, whether you can add automation, reduce the management. Because these mon pause, they don't want to deal with like, they're, they're probably keeping track of this on a spreadsheet, right? Mm-hmm. Like those are the best when you get the financials on a spreadsheet. Because then right. you know like for sure I can add value here. Right. So, and you mentioned you look for uh, X amount of you know, units within a, a radius. What What is that threshold that you guys like to see? Yeah, it's it's units per capita is usually how you dictate it. Um, and you know, it's hard. It's a it's a it's a moving item based upon what what market you're in. I I can't say there's like a specific number that you want to see units underneath. But okay. Like, it really depends on the population growth because you could look at a units per capita in a market and be like, wow, there's way too many units here. But then the population growth is 4%. Mm -hmm. Well, you're probably in a territory market, like an outside market or a suburb market. And it's like the numbers are all skewed. So you really have to do research in that area and look at the population growth and then just kind of compute your numbers together. So it's hard to say just a a certain percentage. Gotcha. But it's definitely a big one that everyone talks about. Mm -hmm. What are the units per capita? I mean, that is like one of the biggest keys yeah i'm curious like on a on a sales comp approach yeah like what how do you guys i know on multifamily and hotels where i was like oh what's the price per door what's the price per unit what do you guys is it price per square foot how do you guys how do you guys price out these comps yeah so i was a multifamily guy for you know years before i even hit storage but yeah everything switched cost per square foot Mm. so it's yeah yeah what's what is the cost per foot um, what's the market rental rate? So like as a developer, we can go into a, a new area and be like, okay, can we build for a hundred bucks a foot and can we rent for one fifty? Mm. You know what I mean? So like, we just know it's like, no, the comps are like one ten rental per square foot and build costs can be one thirty. Okay, okay. Math doesn't work. Move on. And, uh, cause some different areas cost more to build in more regular, you know, more, you know, we're in a northern climate, so we're just going to call it. It's expensive to build up there because we live on soil that we literally have to have footings and floors and mm. more building. Well, if you're building in Arizona, you just pour a slab and go. So the cost per first square foot, you can be cheaper. Sure. So everything's per square foot. You just convert it. Yeah. Which is different coming from multifamily or uh, or boutique hotels. Yeah, that's yeah. easy. So h- how did you get into uh, self-storage? Like, What were you doing before this? You know, so, you know, like my whole story was like, I'm just a concrete guy at the end of the day. Like, and I got converted when I started my construction company 13 years ago. Basically, I kind of like, like my story goes that like I was a concrete guy for first seven years of my business. That's all I knew. I grew the company to, you know, about 15 to 20 people, but I was only there. Everyone was reliant upon me. So I ended up going through like, I had like the good old fashioned, uh, you know, concrete life where I had like six coffees and four monsters a day, you know, oh, it's like, nice, <laughs> not a healthy lifestyle, we'll call it. And, you know, it just got to me because I was, I was the do it all man. And I was the best concrete finisher. I was the business guy I was doing the estimates. I was taking care of the accounting. I was just trying to do it all. Um, but it just wound up anxiety ate me up and you know, I freaking, my wife would tell me that the sheets are yellow on my side of the bed. It, I wouldn't sleep. I just like, yeah. like, I think when you go into business, you don't realize, you know, I was just engraved in this and, and I ended up winding in the hospital Mm. at the end of the day. And when I, when I was in the hospital, I just kind of realized like, Hey, if I don't really have a business because like without me, those guys, they don't know what the hell to do. And you might as just fold shop and I'll just be another business down the drain. Sure. So, and then I started getting curious, like how the wealthy, like, like 
I was making money as a contractor. Of course, I was, I was doing everything. I was working 100 plus hours a week, but I never knew how to keep any money, you know? And then, and then you know, a little guy named Grant Cardone started jumping around on my phone, <laughs> uh, either listen to me talk or whatever it was. But he got, he made me curious about real estate because he was kind of the only one preaching it probably mm. at that time, at, at that level. Sure. And this was probably 2018, 17 area. And so I got super curious on, I was like, I need to start making money while I sleep. And, you know, just listening to everything Grant Cardone would say, you know, mm-hmm. some debatable topics. But I ended up going, I was in his first mentorship class in 2019. So I flew down to Miami and, and I just got, you know, he had a first mentorship group. There was wow. like 30 of us in it. And I just learned a lot from him. And he's like, it's like Cardone Capital at that point was like his real big like push. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was telling us all the reasons why and his business, you know, if, w- is great, but he'll never let go of any of the real estate, you know? So then, so then the curiosity just opens up and I was mm-hmm. like, all right, I got to figure this out. Right. So then I started just doing verticals. I started, you know, I started developing my own real estate and holding it. And so, and, and started even buying it. Like I started getting curious. I bought my first office building. It was 1.1 million. And I, I like didn't sleep for a week, like mm. up to, well, it's like, I didn't know, like I've never bought in any real estate. So it's like, that was a lot of money to me to take out a loan for 900 grand and put 200 grand, you know, it was yeah. just scary. It's always scary. Yeah. The first one's always scary. And then, yeah, then you get a little more confidence and then the next one's scary and then you get a little more confidence yeah. and it, it's, yeah, I hear you, man. I, I, it's all part of the journey. It literally just like, it felt like at that point, it's just a roll of the dice. Like I just didn't know, like, yeah. okay. And then you, and then you buy it and the loan closes and it's like, Okay, nothing changed other than I got to pay this loan, but all the tenants are making the loan. I was like, this really does work. Yeah. All right. Right. <laughs> How simple of a process that I held up myself. So uh, you did some multifamily stuff. You, you bought some office. Yeah. Um, and then how, how did you, like, how did the self-storage come to fruition? Yeah. So I think I realized through multifamily, I, I had a property management company. And so I had a couple hundred units that we were managing and it was like, we just didn't have enough to support a big management group. And there was turns and property managers trying to keep everyone happy. We just couldn't do it. We couldn't keep just property managers in general, just mm-hmm. in our area. So my wife and I decided she was going to be the property manager and, and it just consumed all my time, all to make, you know, five, six, 7% of whatever net revenue was. So it just found out it wasn't worth it. Like it was a lot of work. These class C and B apartments. So it's like, you just got tenant issues. Uh, like, I don't want to deal with these people's mm-hmm. issues. It was consuming my time. So we got into multifamily more and more. And then I'd realize oh, we're not going to do property management anymore. And then converting, I realized that storage, once we started building some of it, and I just took a swing with storage, those bigger storage units too, mm-hmm. because no one else has been doing this. No one has been doing a climate control large storage unit without a bathroom or drain or something else. You know, you see these nice condo shops with bathrooms and it's like maybe a couple of cars and then the loft. And mm-hmm. that's not what this is. This is literally a boring self-storage unit. It's just bigger and it's climate controlled. And they all leased up like right now. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I was like, well, that one worked. Let's build another. Boom, filled up again. I'm like, huh. I was like, this is working. And then we built three more and it's like, those are filling, you know, those are, we just built those last year. They're already 90 plus percent. So it's like, man, let's go do this again. And so we're doing another brand new facility in Fargo, North Dakota. Um, that's about five and a half million. So we just kind of, you know, you got a proof of concept now and, Mm -hmm. and now, you know, investors understand it. Um, we put them in demographics with, with higher net worth, maybe next. And 
here's what you got happening too, is these strict HOAs, you know, most HOAs that are strict, they don't let you even park in the driveways. They're not letting you park a boat. They're not letting you park anything in the driveway. Like you got to keep it clean. And, and these storage facilities are just taking bank on that. And the big storage facilities like mine are taking in those, those guys. And, and so that's what's gotten me curious about doing more luxury storage and why I've really enjoyed it, I guess. I like that it's really boring. It's really easy to run. I don't have to do the property manager. I have to deal with the tenant's problems. There is problems, right? Like mm-hmm. some, but most of it can be automated. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Well, brother, I, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show, man. It's yeah. been a pleasure connecting. I'm, I'm very inspired by everything that you're doing yeah. uh, on the self-storage side. Uh, how can listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn how to invest with you? Yeah. So we have a company called Mac Capital. We uh, let investors invest right beside us in our storage facilities. Also follow me. Yeah. Mark.coon.mac. I'm sure we'll link below or something. Tag this. And I have an email that I've been working on uh, real hard on follow the herd where I actually break down the deals that I'm doing. It could be the self storage deals. It could be how I'm seller financed. You know, I've bought in different apartment deals um, and I get ac- I get access to the investors. So it helps, you know, show them how I'm doing the deals, right? Like, mm-hmm. and you can do this too. I'm just literally, so I have an email that goes out every Saturday. It's got 2,700 subscribers on that. So it's a really close following and you get to watch my journey. I love that. And uh, if I'm ever in North Dakota, man, I'll have to uh, hit you up. We'll, we'll connect. <laughs> yeah. You must be real lost if you hit North Dakota. <laughs> but if you want to see what a goose down feather coat is like, there you we come go. on up. Now, now we're talking. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, my man. He's Mark Kuhn. I'm Rich Summers. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in the next one. Peace.